0: Hello, Christ Community Church. Thank you for inviting us into your space today. We've got lots going on, especially coming up. We've got a lot of things going on here. So make sure to check out our website. Um, Go to our events page, see the different things that are coming on. There's groups on there, ways that you can get connected. There's some courses on there um, for just enrichment. Um, And be sure to like and subscribe so that you get more content in your feed. Hello, everyone. I'm really glad to be here, Um, really glad, because for the last six days, I wasn't sure if I was going to be. I had some, man, sore throat, head cold. It just took me out for the whole week. But I'm feeling much better um, today, praise God. And uh, I won't be in the lobby greeting. I'm gonna just avoid people um, and try to save my voice for the weekend. But it is really good to be here with you. We are in the the final week of a five-week mini series in which we're slowing down and walking verse by verse through John chapters 18 and 19, where we see an eyewitness account of Jesus' journey to the cross. And it's honestly pretty difficult um, to look at as we see Jesus suffering, but it has also been incredibly life-giving for me and, and for us as a church. I feel like this last five weeks has had the presence of God all over it. That's just been my sense that as we as a church have reflected upon and focused our hearts on Jesus' journey to the cross. Some of us are fasting from things and they're spending time in his word through the devotionals. There's just a really cool season that we're in. And and so I just celebrate that. Um, So last week's passage ended with Jesus declaring these three life-altering words. It is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. Jesus died. Which brings us to this final section of these two chapters, John 19, verses 31 to 42. So in this section, John isn't hurrying to the resurrection. He wants us to spend some time reflecting on this painful reality that at this moment in time, in this story, at this moment in time, Jesus is dead. He is dead. So why is this important? Why does John spend these 12 verses talking about Jesus being dead? Well, there are three reasons that I want to unpack with you, three aspects of Jesus being dead that are super important for us to grasp and understand. First of all, first reason is the certainty of Jesus' death. John's focus in verses 31 to 37 is on this very thing. John, as an eyewitness, wants us to know that Jesus really was dead. See, John was writing this manuscript at a time when there were different theories floating around about Jesus and about his resurrection. And one of those ideas was that Jesus didn't really die. So in in Princess Bride terms, he was mostly dead. He just wasn't completely dead. And so he was mostly dead. And then in the cold darkness of the tomb, his body was resuscitated. And that's how he showed up on Easter morning. It wasn't a resurrection, it was a resuscitation. So John goes after this theory head on. He goes after it head on. So look with me beginning in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, given the Jewish customs regarding Sabbath, the Jewish leaders approached Pilate to see if he could speed up the dying process by having the soldiers go back and break the legs of those who were being crucified. If their legs were broken, they would be unable to push up on the nails in their feet, enabling them to take another breath and they would die quicker. I mean, crucifixion, I mean, it's hard to even know how to describe it. It was a horrible, evil practice. Like humanity at its worst is crucifixion. And, And these Jewish and these religious leaders are fully complicit in its horror. They're worried about their Sabbath rituals. So would you break the legs of these guys so they die quicker? That's not about compassion. That is, it's complicity in the evil. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. And then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs so the soldiers break the legs of the other two criminals who were still alive they were still breathing they were still alive on the cross on their crosses <clears throat> but when they get to jesus it's clear to them that he's already dead so they don't break his legs see john's point in telling us this is that if there was any indication of the smallest possibility of life the soldiers would have broken jesus legs they were ordered to do so but they didn't they didn't because jesus was not breathing Verse 34, "'Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side "'with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water.'" So when one of the soldiers takes a spear and pierces Jesus' side, there is no wincing in pain, there's no reaction from the body of Jesus, which would be expected if he were still alive. All that happens is that there's this flow of blood and water. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this blood and water thing. You can read about it online, whatever, if you want, in terms of medically what was going on. And, and there's also maybe people speculating, maybe there's some symbolism here. John's bringing about, you know, blood and water, cleansing and forgiveness, all that stuff. Maybe, but John's focus here seems to me to be on one thing, his eyewitness testimony that Jesus was dead. That's what he's going after here. In fact, look at the next verse, verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now John, throughout this book, he never refers to himself by name, but it seems pretty clear. He is the one who is witnessing these events. John wants his readers to know that he saw this happen. He saw with his own eyes that Jesus was dead. This is his honest testimony, his eyewitness testimony of what he saw. Now, John then, he also takes this opportunity to highlight that um, how even these things that have happened after Jesus' death Even these things, so Jesus is not orchestrating any of these things, right? Even these things fulfill various Old Testament prophecies, various scriptures in the Old Testament. Look at verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now the first quote, is most likely a reference to Exodus 20, Exodus 12, where God gives directions to the people about how the Passover lamb is to be prepared. And in the in that description, it's explained that not one of the, the lamb's um, legs are to be broken, or bones are to be broken. And, and here we see Jesus, the lamb of God, whose legs are not broken. But it also could be a reference to Psalm 34, where the psalmist says of the righteous man that God, and I'll quote here, he protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. So that, either one of those could be what the reference John is making here. Now the piercing scripture is really fascinating to me. This comes from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, again, written centuries before Jesus is is on the cross here, found in Zechariah chapter 12. And God here in Zechariah, he is speaking to, to to his people, so God is the one speaking, and this is what he says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. I mean, isn't this amazing? God is saying that he himself will be pierced, which is exactly what happens. Jesus, God in the flesh, is pierced by a spear. So John is, is using eyewitness testimony as well as Old Testament scriptures to strongly declare the certainty of Jesus' death on the cross. Why is this important? Well, if Jesus didn't actually die, then the whole gospel story as described throughout scripture falls apart. Jesus had to die in order to take the consequences of our sin upon himself. If he didn't die, then no sacrifice was made for us. And not only that, but just functionally speaking, if someone asserts that Jesus didn't die, then we're still left with the question, well, where did he go after his resuscitation, right? He appeared to a few people and then what? He just lived to a ripe old age, hidden away in some retirement community somewhere or whatever, never to be seen in public again. I mean, that that makes no sense. He didn't just disappear, right? So in this section, John is its kind of an apologetic that he's making here. John is strongly asserting the certainty of Jesus' death. Well, the second aspect of Jesus' death that we see here in this passage is the emotional weight. Of Jesus' death. Okay, so part of the challenge for us in reading this passage is that we know Chapter Twenty is coming, right? We know the resurrection is going to happen. So the the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a K State basketball game to watch later, but then I found out the score. Um, when the game ended, I kind of looked at the ESPN app and I found out the score, oh, they won. And so I knew they'd won. So when I watched, of course I'm gonna watch it, even though I know the score, right? So when I watched the replay later, I wasn't bothered when they were down by 11 points in the second half. I was like, oh, cool, they're gonna pull it out, no big deal. I was totally chill. If I hadn't known the outcome, I would have experienced that game very differently, right? I would have you know, been in an emotional wreck most of the game or whatever. So, so my point is that in order for us to feel the full weight of this passage, we need to try to remove from our minds the, the, the resurrection that we know is gonna happen. We need to try to remove that from our minds if possible and enter into what was going on in the hearts of those who loved and followed Jesus. They didn't know a resurrection was gonna happen. All right, so verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So this is kind of an unexpected twist in this story. We would expect that Jesus' closest disciples would be the ones doing this. They would be doing something to take care of the body of Jesus, but they're not. We know from the next chapter that his 11 disciples were gathering together behind closed doors for fear of the religious leaders, right? They are in no position to go to Pilate and ask for permission to take the body down. They are fearing for their own lives. Why, you know, why would they do that in their minds? So this man named Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for permission. So who is this guy? Well, the other gospel writers tell us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a big deal. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the Supreme Court for, for the Jews. And so Joseph is a key Jewish leader who John tells us, was also a disciple of Jesus but he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jewish leaders but now that Jesus is dead now that Jesus is dead it seems like this would be a natural time for Joseph to just continue to be secret about his secretive about his faith or to give it up entirely i mean Jesus is dead why would Joseph now let anyone know about his faith? But clearly something was happening in Joseph's heart. Maybe he had seen the anger and the hatred in, in his fellow Jewish leaders and realized the hypocrisy and the poison in their hearts compared to the way Jesus lived and, and taught and all of that, maybe. We, we don't know what was going on in Joseph's heart, but we do know that in this moment, he chooses to come out of hiding. He courageously approaches Pilate, asking for permission to take Jesus' body down. And interestingly enough, he's accompanied by another Jewish leader, Nicodemus, who, as we saw in John chapter three, had secretly visited Jesus at night, asking lots of questions. But now he too is courageously displaying his belief in Jesus. This is a point of no return for both of these Jewish leaders. Once word gets out about what they're doing, and it will get out, once word gets out, they are toast, right? They'll be kicked out of the Sanhedrin, stripped of all authority, reputation, all of that stuff. So Jesus' humiliating death didn't cause them to lose their faith it actually solidified it. They saw in Jesus the heart of this God that they had devoted their lives to seek after. And so their faith was solidified. Verse 39, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now this is basically a small funeral. This is a paying of respect. This is closure, These two men take Jesus' body down from the cross and they prepare the body for burial. Now, I can't can't imagine the emotional weight of this, right? The, the, The feelings of regret. Why didn't I follow him sooner? Or the feelings of grief and loss. They had never seen a rabbi like this with such compassion and winsomeness and wisdom and power. And now he's dead, that their own Jewish colleagues had killed the best representative of God that they had ever seen. So just imagine their feelings of hopelessness and despair. All, all these emotions that we experience in the face of death were, were certainly stirring in their hearts. I mean, this is without question one of the, the saddest, darkest moments in human history. The Messiah, God's son, sent to rescue us, is dead. His lifeless, beaten, bloodied body is laying on a cold slab in a sealed tomb. And yet here are Joseph and Nicodemus putting their faith on the line when all hope seems lost. Again, they don't know a resurrection is coming. All they see is suffering and they're still walking by faith. Like, I don't want us to miss the significance of this. Sometimes in Christian circles, there's this hyped up view of faith that if you just have enough faith, your suffering will be healed. Um, but, but what if we pray in faith and it isn't removed? What then? I mean, what, what if our suffering continues? See, if faith is only measured in terms of whether I pray enough faith and then it, you know, it doesn't happen. So what if our suffering continues? See, that's when things get really awkward, right? Very awkward and uncomfortable. We don't want it to say. Is it God's fault? Is it my fault? See, the, the problem is for many Christians, we don't have a theology that includes suffering. And this is especially true of American Christianity. We don't have a around the world, they do have a theology of suffering because they In a sense, often suffer more than we do. We don't have a we don't really have a robust theology that includes suffering. We we have a theology that that includes a resurrection, but not the cross. We we have a theology rooted in Sunday morning, Easter morning, but not necessarily Good Friday. So then when healing doesn't happen, when we pray, we immediately start looking for some reason. Maybe we didn't pray the right way. Maybe we didn't have enough faith. Maybe God doesn't care. Our our theology isn't working, so we got to have an answer. And what can slowly happen over time is that our faith just starts to erode. It begins to fill with doubts. If if God is real and loving, why isn't he doing anything to alleviate my pain? Again, we don't have a big enough theology for suffering. And man, these questions are real. I wrestle with these all the time, maybe in my own life or as I'm walking with people all the time, battling cancer and this or that. I'm just, these are questions all the time. And I personally find that the typical Christian answers within this narrow kind of theology, the the typical Christian answers just are pretty shallow. Like, Pray harder. I mean, really? Pray harder. So is God this reluctant, emotionally distant deity in the sky who like some Greek God of mythology, he insists on us jumping through certain hoops in order to get him to do anything? He's just kind of dangling the carrot out and "Oh, you gotta pray, you gotta fast for at least five more days and then maybe all, I mean, is that what God is like? Or, or, or what about, oh, you just need more faith. Well, if Jesus says, I only need the faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain, then what's wrong with the quantity of my faith? I'm fasting, I'm praying, and God doesn't seem to be answering. See, this is where Joseph and Nicodemus' faith teach us something really important. They show us what faith looks like in the midst of suffering. Our faith, look, friends, our faith needs to be big enough to, yes, pray boldly for healing, and also to keep trusting God when healing doesn't happen. See, that's where the rubber meets the road, right, in terms of faith. Our faith needs to be big enough to face the death of a friend or to face our own death, even when it makes no sense We need a faith and a theology that are big enough to walk through suffering even when circumstances don't get fixed and things don't get healed. And I think that's part of what John is wanting us to slow down and experience in this passage. When all hope seems lost, are we still able to trust God? Are we still able to love Jesus? Are we still willing to walk with him? See, I'm inspired. I'm inspired by the faith of Joseph and Nicodemus who rather than giving up their faith or cowering in fear, they choose at this moment, they choose to come out of hiding and publicly say, we're followers of Jesus. Even as we bury him, we are not burying our faith. Even as everything around us feels hopeless, we are still choosing to follow him. That's amazing. And every day in the role I have, I see people in our church family walking through really hard things. Circumstances that for some reason healing has not come and they are trusting Jesus day by day. They're in situations that are incredibly difficult and challenging and they are trusting Jesus. They're showing up, they're worshiping him, they're they're just, they're just following Jesus. And that kind of faith, that kind of faith is the faith Jesus is looking for. That kind of faith inspires me. It's way more robust than simply a faith that's only defined by whether healing happens or not. We need a faith that includes all of that. Yeah, I believe in healing. I'm gonna pray boldly for healing. But if it doesn't happen, I want a faith that is big enough for that. And I think that's what uh, Joseph and Nicodemus show us here. It's amazing. It's really amazing. There's one other aspect of Jesus' death that that I want us to explore. Um, and that is the activity of Jesus in his death. What do I mean by that? Well, historically speaking, many believers in Jesus and many church fathers have believed that while Jesus' physical body was dead and lying in a tomb, his spirit was alive and doing some pretty amazing things. Now, before I talk about some scriptures with regard to this, I want you to know this is not an essential doctrine of our faith. Many sincere believers will disagree with me on these things. They'll disagree on these things, and that's okay. I think it's worth exploring. It was actually something that in the history of the church early on, the first few centuries, this was a core, it's in the creed's core thing, but we've kind of lost sight of it. And so I want to just explore it Together. I think it's worth exploring, and you're going to see why in in a, in a few minutes here, why it's worth it. So, there are a few passages in scripture that seem to describe Jesus' activity between Good Friday and Easter morning. So, we're going to look at four. So, let's start with a passage John wrote later in his life, okay, in Revelation chapter one. John describes a vision of Jesus speaking, and look at what Jesus says Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now that last line is so fascinating. To hold the keys of something means to be an absolute authority over that. And then he mentions two things. He mentions he holds the keys to death And he holds the keys to Hades. Now, death was the previous king, the previous ruler. And so Jesus is saying that now he, because of his resurrection, he is now ruler over death. But Jesus also mentions that he holds the keys to Hades. Hades is a location. Hades is a location. This word Hades in the Bible is a reference to a holding place for the dead it is a location. It's sometimes translated hell in older translations, but technically it's not hell. It is a word that was used in that day. The word in the Old Testament is sheol, same kind of idea. In the New Testament, the word was Hades. It was, it was a word that you, you, you used to talk about a holding place for souls. So what many scholars believe is is being described here in Revelation 117 is a moment in time when Jesus descended into Hades and he asserted his authority over that location. So when did that happen? Well, I believe it happened sometime between Friday night and Easter morning. Jesus in his spirit descended into Hades. Another passage in Acts 2, as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter, in describing Jesus' resurrection, he's quoting from a psalm, okay, a psalm of David, but he's describing Jesus' resurrection. Here's what he says, for you, this would be like Jesus is speaking to the Father, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruptions. Peter is describing how while Jesus' physical body is dead, his soul will be, he says it right here, will be in Hades, but it will not remain there. Jesus is saying to the Father, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Okay, third scripture, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse nine, Paul writes, what does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe so some scholars believe this idea of jesus descending refers to jesus coming to earth that he descended in his incarnation came to earth but other scholars acknowledge that the language often that the language used here often refers to the underworld And when you think about it, the mention of the highest heaven in the whole universe in verse 10, contrasting with the lower regions, seems to be describing something beyond Jesus simply coming to earth. It describes as one one scholar articulates, no part of the universe, Hades, earth, heaven, was to be unvisited by Jesus. I love that. Okay, one more passage worth looking at. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water this is a really challenging passage i mean you can look, I mean, there are so many different interpretations because there's a lot going on here and so i'm not saying that this passage is clear on all the details of what's going on a lot of interpretations but It seems to me that it is describing something that Jesus did in his spirit immediately after he died. Peter seems to be saying that in Jesus' spirit, Jesus went somewhere and he proclaimed to some spirits in prison who had disobeyed during the time of Noah. Okay, who are these spirits in prison? I don't know, okay? And you can read tons of information about it. No one knows, honestly, um, except God, right? But, uh, but we, don't, we don't know a lot of specifics here. But look, what, what, and, and the other question is, what did he proclaim? We don't know that either. Did he, did he proclaim condemnation? Did he proclaim the gospel? The text doesn't say. What the text does suggest is that Jesus descended into some place in the spirit underworld and he did so for a very specific gospel-related purpose, which we know from Revelation 1 included in some way Jesus taking the keys of death and Hades. So when Jesus left that region, it was now fully under his control. Okay, all this is interesting to talk about, at least for me, maybe not for you, but um, what difference does this make to our everyday lives? Look, here a couple things here. For me personally, This has a huge impact on how I think about death, my death, that moment in time when my spirit will separate from my physical body. That all feels very unknown to me, but it is not unknown to Jesus. Jesus has been to Hades and back. Jesus has been to the realm of the dead, and in doing so, he reveals to us that there is no place in the universe he hasn't visited and ministered in. But there's something else that's really comforting about this. Even when things look bleak and hopeless, even when we are surrounded by death and suffering, even when we're burying, like Joseph and And Nicodemus, we're burying a friend. Even when we're in the midst of utter despair, guess who is still working behind the scenes? Jesus is. Nothing can keep Jesus from working, even death itself. That's pretty cool, right? Okay, anyway, um, he is working even when we don't see it. Well, what a, what an amazing journey this past five weeks has been for us to follow Jesus really each step of the way to the cross. So his betrayal by a friend, his unjust interrogation, his theological dialogue with Pilate about the kingdom, and, and his hate, the hatred from Jewish leaders, and then the brutal beating from the Roman soldiers, then being nailed to a cross naked while soldiers gambled over his only remaining possession. He then proclaimed to the world, it is finished, and then gave up his spirit resulting in his death in his physical body, but an energizing of his spirit to secure his triumph over death and Hades. I mean, what an amazing hope and peace and strength in the midst of suffering can be ours because of Jesus' journey to the cross. You know, as I mentioned last week, look, let's not settle for a Christianity that is limited to an empty tomb. Seriously, let's not settle for a Christianity that is limited to an empty tomb. Let's fully embrace, yes, the empty tomb as well as our Savior hanging on a cross. Jesus suffers with us. Jesus suffered for us. The cross of Christ is God's most powerful and tangible demonstration of his love for you and me. The cross vividly shows us the lengths to which God the Father would go in order for us to experience his forever love. So let's never lose sight of our crucified Savior dying on the cross for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the cross Thank you, Jesus, for all that the cross represents about your heart. It shows us your heart in such a powerful way. So, as we enter into prayer here, what is Jesus saying to you in response to his word today? I wanna take just a couple minutes here and just in terms of a specific response, I want us to focus on the faith of Joseph and Nicodemus whose boldest faith moment came in the burying of Jesus. When all hope seemed lost, they they were there even though it would cost them everything. And I'm just wondering, as you're thinking and just quietly, reflecting here. Are there places in your life right now where it feels like darkness and discouragement seem to be reigning? Maybe some dream has died or certain hopes have been dashed. And you wonder, where is God? Why should I still believe in him? Well, Jesus is inviting you to a deeper level of faith. I know you feel like maybe you're losing your faith, but no, he's inviting you to a deeper level of faith, to keep trusting him when you don't understand, when it feels like there is no hope. You keep trusting him. And I just believe Jesus wants to remind us that even when things are the darkest, he is still at work. He is still Lord. He is still on the throne and he still loves you. So God, I want to just pray right now for anyone watching this or anyone here who is in that place of hopelessness, of desperation, of praying and not feeling like prayers are being answered and and they don't know what to do. And I just wanna pray for all of us in that place. I wanna pray, God, Jesus, you would just invite us into this gentle, deeper place of faith where we fix our eyes on you on the cross, we fix our eyes on you and we say yes to you. Even when we don't understand what's happening, we say yes to you. I just want to invite you to say yes to him tonight. Yes to trusting him and following him even in your uncertainty. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. I'm just thinking that song. This is where the glory is. It's You're the one I'm walking with. Whatever I'm going through, the glory is in you walking with us, Lord, even when we don't understand. So thank you for being that kind of a savior. There may be some of you here who, maybe this is the first time and you just, You wanna open your heart to Jesus. He died on the cross for you. He gave his life for you. Maybe you need some hope that goes beyond the grave and he's offering that to you. He offers himself. You can open your heart right now. Just tell him, Jesus, I place my trust in you. I receive you. Cleanse me and come live in me, changing me from the inside out through the power of your love. God, we love you. Thank you that we get to walk with you. So as we continue to worship, we have tables um, with the Lord's Supper up front and at the back. And I just wanna remind us, our faith is rooted in a savior who died for us. Who suffers with us and then he died in our place that's how much he loves you we can trust him even when we don't understand we can trust him and so I want to once we start singing and worshiping you can whether you're standing sitting kneeling at some point we invite you to come to a table take the bread which represents Jesus body given for us and the juice which represents his blood shed for us and as you partake let's let his death stir our faith in him even when we don't see him at work necessarily it's stirring our faith he died for us so jesus thank you for dying for us thank you for this bread which represents your body given for us, and thank you for this juice which represents your blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. We love you. We worship you, God. We partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of all that you have done for us. Thank you that you are still at work. We trust you, Lord. So coming out of this message, however the Holy Spirit is moving in you, the things that are being stirred in your heart, we just want to say we're we're here for you. If you need to talk to somebody, if you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. You can submit prayer requests on our website or app at all times. Or if you want to talk live, we have a live chat box on our website. Uh, just reach out. You're not alone and we're in this together. So have a great week and we'll see you next time.